Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Happy New Year. <laughs> welcome to Barstool Politics. <laughs> and more specifically, welcome to our year in review episode. As I'm sure you've already figured out, I am not Nick McGuire. Uh, Nick is out sick this week, so Phil and I will try to fill in his very, very big shoes. Uh, I am Bill Muck, professor of political science at North Central College, and I'm joined as always by my fellow political scientist, Dr. Phil Barker for Ke- from Keene State College. Hey, Phil. Hey, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so we're very, <laughs> I, I miss Nick I already. <laughs> So we're very excited because we're going to be doing something very different this week. Instead of breaking down the weekly political developments, we're going to look back over all of the political madness that was 2019. Our first year in review review episode, Phil. Pretty exciting. exciting. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Before we dive in, though, just a quick reminder to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, and Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers We Try, you can find at the Untapped app. And of course, the podcast itself is available just about anywhere you can house a podcast. Uh, if you get a moment, we would really appreciate it if you could review us on Apple Podcasts. And most importantly, if you're enjoying the podcast, spread the word, tell your friends, share us on social media. You know, we're growing and it's, it's just wonderful to have people uh, share the information. Also, we just recently launched our own line of merchandise. I can't, I can't help but uh, notice you, that you're wearing your bar Barstool Politics sweatshirt, Bill. <laughs> I wear it all the time now. This is great. So, yes, we have T-shirts and sweatshirts, and uh, we're working on a tinfoil hat. Uh, it's all through Teespring. Uh, but if you go to our social media, either through Facebook or Twitter, you can find the links that will uh, bring you right to our account. Uh, really good stuff. I mean, I, I am enjoying uh, for everybody that I know for Christmas got some Barstool Politics stuff. We've had some listeners post pictures of their Barstool merch on, on Twitter and Facebook. That's fantastic. Um, it's all very it seems, exciting. Though. It seems so, like we need a beer mug. I can't believe we've left that out somehow. Yes. Well, I don't know if Teespring offers a beer mm. mug. They do a coffee mug, but we, we need to find a way to get a, you're right. A beer mug would be good. Um, that's a great idea. So, and we could put that with the tinfoil. Yes. <laughs> So, so, all right, as I've said, we're going to do things a little differently. We've got five topics we're going to look back on. uh, The Democratic primary, international politics, the Mueller report, 2019 being the year of identity politics, and then a big picture look back at the decade to assess what's happened in the 2010s. Is that that what they call it, the 2010s? Yeah, I think so. Okay, I don't like that. Um, So let's start with the Democratic primary, where over the last year, we've seen some dramatic shifts. At one point, the number of candidates swelled to over 28, but has now dwindled to 15 or so, uh, with only Biden, Sanders, and Warren polling in the double digits. In fact, if you include Pete Buttigieg, there are only four candidates polling above 5%. Arguably, the most interesting development has been the rise and decline of Elizabeth Warren. In May, Warren was trailing Joe Biden by over 33 percentage points, 41 to 8 percent. Yet by September, she'd taken over Biden in the weekly YouGov poll to become the frontrunner. 
However, the last couple months have not been good to the Warren campaign as she's fallen to about 16%. And for all the talk about Joe Biden's shakiness, he has stood strong while other big name candidates like Beto, Kamala Harris, and Nick, Nick's favorite, Eric Swalwell, have <laughs> dropped out. I'm so sad Nick can't be here to talk about that. As regular listeners will know, Phil has spent time with nearly all of these candidates as they've made their way through New Hampshire. Phil, some are suggesting that over the course of the year, we've seen the party moderate and get behind more centrist candidates like Biden and Buttigieg. Looking back, what's your sense of the year in the Democratic primary? I, I think that's an interesting observation. I mean, I, the, the, the expectation was that in the era of Trump, oh, there you go, in the era of Trump. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was a little late on the bell there. <laughs> in the era of Trump and, and all the stuff that has happened, there was this big shift in the Democratic Party towards the, the liberal side. Um, and part of that's to be expected in a primary campaign, right? I mean, it's the, the, the most diehard, the most fired up progressives are the ones who are out involved. They're the ones who are paying attention at this point. Um, I, I think whether or not the party is, is shifting back to this moderate stance is kind of yet to be seen. I mean, it looks a little bit like that, but I don't know if we can really draw that conclusion. So when I look, you know, when I think about the people who have the candidates who have come through, the ones who get the biggest turnout, the ones who have the most fired up crowds are the progressives, right? It's the, it's the Bernie, it's the Elizabeth Warren. Um, and, and, you know, Cory Booker is the other one who I saw a lot of people and like really fired up for, um, who's not doing well in the polls, but he's, you know, he's, he's more moderate than, than, um, than Warren and, and Sanders, but he's more progressive than, you know, Biden. Um, and so I think what, what will be interesting is over the next few weeks, you know, we're, we're, a month and a half out from the New Hampshire and Iowa, you know, the primary and caucus. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see who shows up at those. I mean, this is not unusual for there to be in the last few weeks of the, of the uh, campaign, really big shifts as, as voters kind of, you know, uh, rally around a, a particular candidate. Um, and so, you know, Elizabeth Warren had the spotlight on her. And so it makes sense. She got lots of hard questions, lots of, you know, media coverage. It makes sense that she dips some, but I don't know that we necessarily know. I, I, you know, I, I think about national polls where Biden continues to lead versus New Hampshire and Iowa, where he's not doing as well. And when I see people, they're not people aren't fired up about Joe Biden. And so yeah. I, it'll be interesting to see once those first couple of primaries happen, how I mean, I think this is all going to shift around. I, I, it'll be yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, so a couple of things I was looking back. So in December of 2007, so that, you know, the big uh, Clinton and Obama campaign at this point in December of 2007, Clinton was just, you know, way out in front. So she was at 45 percent. Obama was at 27 percent. Uh, Edwards was at 15. Biden was at three, interestingly, all the way back then. And I was reading through some of the articles and they were saying that this was, a, you know, Clinton was going to steamroll everybody. Uh, this was basically over. And we saw, saw such a dramatic shift. So it's entirely possible that once New Hampshire happens, once Iowa happens, we start to see some movement there. Um, so I think you're right. It's way, way, way too early. I do think Buttigieg is a really interesting mm -hmm. candidate because he's getting lots of money now, getting some big time money. Uh, and he fits the role of that centrist guy uh, who's a little a little bit easier to take. Uh, the one thing that struck me over the holidays is that, you know, meeting friends and family up in Wisconsin there were so many people who said, I really like Elizabeth Warren. Uh, there's a lot about her. I like her. You know, I like she's really smart, but she's just I wish she wasn't so liberal. And I wonder whether that narrative is starting to take hold. Yeah. Uh, they like her, but she's just too far. And, and, and I get the sense she's not 
I mean, she's authentic in the sense she's going to stick with the campaign that she wants to run. But there might be do, some downside electorally for that. Do you think are, are they asking that question? Are they saying that that she's I wish she weren't so liberal? Are they saying that because she's too liberal for their personal politics? Or are they saying that because they think she's too liberal to get elected? I, I'd be curious because really there's a difference. Question. There's an important difference there. I think there's a yeah. this tendency, uh, this the narrative of electability becomes more dominant than actually who people like and in a in a weird way. And I, th- I think maybe more the electability issue, and it's hard to know, right? I think some of it comes back to the healthcare plan. I think that probably scares a fair number of people. And I think why it's why Buttigieg has been smart to say, you know, Medicare for all who want it, right? Yeah. That, that little caveat there makes moderates much more comfortable. But I think there also is some of this narrative that she's too far to left. And some of the Democratic candidates have intentionally tried to paint yeah. her that way. Now, that label hasn't stuck or it doesn't seem to be negatively impacting Bernie. Right. He's, you know, he's further left uh, and he's he's held stable. So it's a really interesting question about why that's sticking with her, but not with not with Bernie. It feels like Bernie has that sort of uh, packed in already like that. People know who Bernie is. And there are people who never would have considered Bernie. That's why I think. I think Bernie has a solid base, but he has a lower ceiling too. There are just people who yeah. aren't going to get on board with him. And Elizabeth Warren was still this kind of un, not unknown. People knew who she was, but she didn't. She wasn't cast in the same way as Bernie. Right? Bernie's not a Democrat. He's yeah. openly you know says that he's a socialist. So there's a, there's a certain number of people who would never vote for him. And I think the the ceiling was higher for Elizabeth Warren, and, and so that's maybe why there's more fluctuation for her. I, go ahead. Well, I was just, that's interesting. As you were talking, it made me think. And when Elizabeth, if, if Elizabeth Warren does well in some of those early states and gets more of that national platform, she's pretty compelling when you see her, right? So there is that the narrative about her programs are different than when you actually sit and listen to her give a speech. And I think it's different than the debates, too. I mean, you've seen her in person. She's powerful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think if she started running, running national ads and is, is directly giving that message, that could be more effective. I think uh, there's something, you know, in the idea of looking back, you know, thinking about this, looking back, we're talking about this as if, you know, just the fact that we're having a conversation in which people are worried that Elizabeth Warren is too liberal and therefore the fallback candidate that is safe is an openly gay man is pretty remarkable. Right. I mean, like if we think about where, you know, in, in a year in which people think about you know, all the bad stuff that has happened or the, you know, the problematic situation of things, uh, that, that's, a, that's a pretty dramatic shift in, in American politics. I mean, we're going to talk later in the episode about looking back on, on you know, the last yeah. decade, right? The, the legalization of gay marriage and all the stuff that goes into that. Like that's, that's remarkable. It really is. And I think the other element of it with with Buttigieg's candidacy is that he's getting hammered from the far left. Right. Right. I mean, so he it's not he's a moderate candidate, but he's also yeah an openly gay candidate. uh, And he's still getting hit from the left for being too too moderate. All of that is really, really interesting. Oh, go ahead. Do you think that do you think the Elizabeth Warren thing comes into play for Buttigieg eventually? Because it feels like what happened, people got excited about Elizabeth Warren and then there, there was this worry that that what's going to happen when she's running against Trump? She's too liberal in a general election. Mm-hmm. I, I could see the same thing happening for Buttigieg, and I already see some of the pushback and some of the criticism, like you said, from the far left. But even from you know, not even from the far left, he's taken lots of heat from uh, uh, you know, valid or not, about his military yeah. service, about you know, fundraising, um, and certainly when you get to a general ele- election and you throw in the fact that he's openly gay. 
I, I don't know. I could see the same liberal, you know, same Democratic voters who are scared of their own shadow, right? Who yeah. get excited about Buttigieg and then say, <laughs> I don't know, you put him on stage yeah. with Trump and he's going to get eaten alive. Yeah, that's right. He's too much. And, and then and then that means that Biden's candidacy is even more viable, right? Because he becomes the guy where he's not so far left. He's not gay. He's the old establishment, you know, the guy that's been around forever. You know, I, as and again, as I was thinking about all of our the last year, we've talked so much about the Democratic primary and every episode we talk about some screw up of Biden. Yet yeah. he continues to top the polls. Uh, his campaign ads have gotten a little bit better. Uh, he he seems pretty pretty stable up there, uh, which is surprising because I would have yeah. thought these are there are a lot of good candidates. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is a good candidate. Pete Buttigieg is a good candidate. I mean, there are a lot of candidates that you would think are going to make a run. And he's held strong. Biden has. I, I wonder if that also is, you know, a lot of a lot of the early primary stuff. Um, it, it's, it is a specific subset of people, right? It's like when you get on Twitter, right? the, the Twitter yes. <laughs> universe is not the real world. Yeah. And it, I wonder about, you know, the, the people who are really into the primary early on are people who care deeply about politics, who, you know, research, pay attention to debates and all of that. But a huge chunk of people who will go out and vote are casual politics observers. And I think for them, that kind of goofiness and, you know, gaff, uh, the gaff uh, tendencies of of Biden is again like we talked about with Bernie, and for him it's sort of baked in, and it, somehow yeah. he makes it like he makes it a likable characteristic in in, in ways, and so I, I, that I wonder where you know a general a broader audience people that's kind of who they think of Joe Biden as being, and they like that about him in some ways. I wonder what I mean, we talked about this was it last episode or the episode before now that there the campaign isn't denying that Biden may only do one term. And there's part of me thinks that this is brilliant, right? Because he can then run he can't commit because if you commit, then you're a lame duck president, but he could say, I'm, I'm considering it. And then it, it allows him to have this campaign where he's he's a transition back to normalcy. Uh, I really like that. I think that's a way that he suddenly can separate himself from all others and yeah. say, yes, I realize that eventually the Democratic Party has to move in a different direction, but I'm the guy to bring you back to normal and then we can talk about where we go from there. And I think that might have a lot of appeal across the aisle to those more moderate conservatives. Yeah. Uh, it's a really, I, I, it was one of those and, brilliant moves. I don't know if it was intentional or not. And potentially pick a bigger name vice president, somebody who might not consider a VP role if it takes him out of the game for eight years. That yeah. you know, the idea of it's almost a you know you're you're the 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 next in line. Um, yeah, it would be interesting. The other part of all of this, uh, I'm going to ignore the bell. Yeah, um, is <laughs> <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what happens once we get past the primaries, right? Because I, I don't know. So New Hampshire and Iowa are not like the rest of, of of the country in a couple of ways. One is one is well, obviously they're way wider. They're they're not diverse, right? New Hampshire is not diverse in any way, and so people like uh, there there are questions about you know how viable is an Elizabeth Warren candidacy when she gets to South Carolina, right? And Joe Biden does really well with African Americans, and so maybe people will win in New Hampshire. Uh, that will then fizzle out as we get into the rest of the country. Um, if that's the case, right, Buttigieg, that's, he has not done well at all with minorities. The other flip side of it is the thing that New Hampshire and Iowa have different is that they're paying closer attention. And so yeah. the idea that Biden's doing well and others aren't in other parts of the country, the conclusion you could draw is when the other press, when the rest of the country starts paying attention more, then those, other, those same candidates will rise to the top. And I, I, it'll be interesting to see which of those 
kind of plays yes. out. It, it strikes me that Iowa and New Hampshire are more important to Buttigieg and maybe Elizabeth Warren yeah. than they are to Biden. Biden yeah. can just do okay in those first two. Go to South Carolina. He's going to get a big win there. If Buttigieg doesn't do well in New Hampshire or Iowa, now he and he for a while he was leading both, right? Right. Uh, if he comes out of there, then suddenly there's the potential of him taking off. Same thing with Warren. If she does well in both of those, then she's very much in the question in the conversation. But if they don't, suddenly they become maybe one of those uh, those also rans. Uh, and I think yeah. there's there's going to be a lot of other candidates that will quickly drop out. I mean, there's there, fifteen is still way too many. Right. Right. So, oh, good. Anything else? There's so much more we could talk about, but okay. we should move on or it's going to be an <laughs> eight-hour right. podcast. All right, because we're going to go to international next. So uh, 2019 was full of dramatic international stories. As we've spent much time discussing, the adults in the room have all left the Trump administration, leaving U.S. foreign policy ever more personalized and erratic as U.S. foreign policy swerves wildly with the president's mood swings. It was a year in which President Trump became the first sitting American commander-in-chief to set foot in North Korea. Yet despite all the summits and love letters between Trump and Kim Jong-un, we appear to be no closer to North Korean denuclearization. The year also brought talk uh, talk of war with Iran, an awkward and hasty U.S. withdrawal from Syria, a trade war with China, and a U.S. withdrawal from the International Intermediate Range Nuclear Force INF Treaty with Russia. Globally, We've seen pro-democracy advocates marching against the government in Hong Kong and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson leading his conservative party to a big victory and a mandate to push through the Brexit deal. Phil, it's hard not to get the sense that in 2019 there was a further unraveling of the old international order. You, you, you cool with that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> not in the way that it's played out. <laughs> right. if, if we were shuffling things up and there were some new, you know, I, the idea that things are always going to be the way they were when I was growing up, right? Obviously, that's not the case. But the 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 new era that's being ushered in is a little disconcerting. It, it feels like. Um, you know, we as as people, you know, you and I both teach U.S. foreign policy. We teach international politics, and you can see these these kind of huge turning points in international politics. Right, the end of World War II, where you have the rise of the two new superpowers, and you know, the the, the continental European powers become secondary powers. The U.S. and Russia or the Soviet Union are dominant. Uh, you know, nineteen ninety, right, eighty nine through ninety two, with the collapse of communism and the fall of the Soviet Union, and there was all of this discussion about what's the world going to look like now. And we have this era of American hegemony and, and you know, the, the liberalization. It felt like, you know, it was the third wave of democracy, yeah. right? All of these countries around the world democratize. Um, this feels like one of those moments, right? I mean, we're here we are 30 years on again. I mean, if these, it seems like this is happening sort of every 30 to 40 years. Yeah. Uh, and it feels we're like we're at one of those big turning points. Um, and it feels like. You know, when you when you look around the world, what is happening is the questioning of those those kind of pillars of Western liberal international politics. Democracy and free trade are the two big ones, right? And that's across Europe, across democratic countries, people questioning whether democracy is actually the best way forward for them. Um, and certainly the questioning of, you see both of these in the United States, which is what's remarkable, right? Yeah. The, the free trade stuff I talk about on both sides of the aisle when I talk with my students, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are, were both running you know, in the last presidential election on this kind of anti-trade approach. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that what's going to come out of this will be worse, but right now I don't see any, 
I don't see a whole lot of positives. I mean, I, I do see people fighting back, right? Whether it's whether it's in Hong Kong and protests there, whether it's, you know, there are lots of places where there are these sort of pro-democratic, this pushback happening. Um, it, it doesn't seem clear to me that, you know, which side is going to win this, but it does feel like things are going to be different. I, I totally agree. And, and as you were talking, it made me think about, you're right, after the after the fall of the Soviet Union and the, and the Berlin Wall and the Cold War, all of that, we used the phrase the post-Cold War world because we didn't have a new term for what that world was going to look like. And it was a lot of years where it was still the, well, we're in the post-Cold War world. And I feel like that's where we are right now. We're after, you know, we, it feels like the globalization era is shifting. It doesn't mean globalization goes away. But this next wave will be different. Uh, so I think that's really, really important. The, the fact that the United States is pulling back, is retrenching from its global leadership role is absolutely significant. Of all the stories we talk about, that and the rise of China may be the most important one. Because as the United States turns away, China is filling every single gap that we leave. That's going to matter, right? The world, China now is going to play a, a prominent role in defining what that world looks like. So it's, it's, it's an exciting time. I'm a little more pessimistic about what that looks like, because if the old order is free trade and democracy, I think in general, those are really, really good things. Yeah. What fills that gap? I'm not sure. I mean, maybe conceivably it's a more equitable free trade system, and that would be good if we think about making sure that the system works for everybody. But I'm, I'm not sure that's the case, right? I don't know if the states that are, are coming into power are going to be arguing for a, a retweaking of, of globalization in a more you know reasonable and fair way. How how resilient do you think the so when I think you know, when people talk about the post Cold War order and and these you know liberal institutions and we're talking about uh, NATO and stuff like that but really the UN and the IMF and the World Trade Organization the these sort of Western notions of liberal uh, of human rights um, you know we've seen improvements in because of a lot of the stuff we've seen improvements in life expectancy and decri- the declines in in violence international violence. Um, it's been good. It's yeah. it been under uh, like to be fair. It's been especially good for the United States, and I understand why other countries around the world are are wanting sort of a renegotiation of the terms of of international uh, of the international system. But I, I guess my question is, how resilient do you think those institutions are? Because it feels like there's this questioning of it. Yeah. And I could see it either that they collapse, right? And there's a whole new thing that emerges. Maybe that's, you know, with the rise of China and all this. I could also see another model in which they're being challenged. And what emerges is is a form of a sort of a newer, stronger, and maybe more inclusive uh, version of these kind of Western liberal uh, institutions. And maybe it's just me being naive, but I, I, I want to think that those institutions are resilient and that people are pushing back. But the, 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 I don't know, the, the, the wiser consensus and the thing that people will come around to is that these are, these do more good than harm. Yes. I think it's it's useful to divide those institutions up into both the economic side and the political side. So you can think about the free market and democracy. I'm more worried about the democracy side of things. I think the the free market, the globalization, the economic side is pretty resilient. Now, what and I think the other thing to think about is that the pushback against globalization is coming from Europe is coming from the United States. It's not necessarily coming from the developing world. So when you look at, uh, you know, polling about the degree to which countries around the world support free trade, the developing world is absolutely on board with free trade because they've seen these tangible benefits. The pushback on the economic side is coming from the developed world where you're seeing some alienation, especially among uh, the blue collar segment of, of Europe and the United States who are losing some of those jobs. 
But I, I feel like that has some resiliency, if only because China is going to have the power to continue to maintain those institutions. The democracy stuff, that's what I'm really worried about, because those, you know, China is not going to be pushing that. If the United States continues to drift away from uh, caring about human rights and democracy, I mean, even even Donald Trump, I think it's fair to say, is less committed to global democracy and, you know, democracy within the United States. That's the one that I feel could could have a serious crumbling over the next 15 yeah. to 20 years. And that's that's <laughs> sad. It is. They, they seem intertwined. I mean, you said, it, I think it is important to separate them, but it also feels like a lot of the pushback against democracy is coming as a result of economic causes, right? It's about, it's about, uh, you know, people feeling like they have lost out and other people, which oftentimes, you know, becomes, uh, you know, targeting immigrants or, or, you know, foreign workers or whatever, but it's this otherness, right? They're the ones who are, who are to blame for my economic struggles. And so it feels like what is happening is people who don't feel like they're winning mm-hmm. in this economic system anymore are turning, uh, you know, to government. They're wanting a different system of government to fix that. And that, yeah. so it feels like they're, they're intertwined and, and it is unfortunate because again, you know, economically speaking, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to deny that, that, you know, especially the last 10 years after the economic crisis, people have been hit hard, but in the grand scheme of things, right? We have it really damn well economically. And so um, you hate to see that. Uh, Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you address one without the other. It it feels like it needs to be a conversation. It's like a remnant of nationalism, right? Where identity mixes into this. Well, the other thing to think about is that even though the developing world right now is very much embracing free trade because free trade has led to very tangible benefits for them. So if you're living in China over the last 20 years, 25 years, when you're pulling 400 million people out of poverty, that's a dramatic shift. But now as those as those people move into middle class, they're going to want to be sustained and continue to develop. And if the economic system can't provide for everybody, that angst could shift from the developed world to the developing world. And then there are even greater pressures on that system to produce. And and I think capitalism has shown that it's really good at generating wealth. We've never seen anything in history that can generate the wealth the way that capitalism can. But it doesn't do so equitably, right? It doesn't do so right. in a way that everybody benefits. And if you don't ultimately come up with a system where everybody is on board, you're going to continue to have more and more pushback. And and we're seeing it in in, in the United States and, and especially in Eastern Europe and parts of Western Europe. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a major challenge for the next maybe fifty years to see what happens there. Right, and and the, all those advantages that I talked about, the the fact yeah. that we have it good is in is in some way, at least in the short term, dependent on those economic inequalities. Yes. Right, the, the fact that we can have an iPhone, iPhones aren't cheap, but we can have them because there are people around the world who assemble them at fifty cents an hour or whatever. Yeah. And so, uh, as they get wealthier, or as we demand that jobs stay here, that has it all. You know, there are all these moving pieces where you push one and it has an effect in other places. And I think, in the long term, through through efficiency and all sorts of other things. You know, the, I, there, I, they can be, it can be worked out, right? In which yeah. we have a better world. But in the maybe, short term, maybe, I, right? I, yeah. maybe, maybe. But in the short term, it does feel like you know that's those short term adjustments and shifts are what are leading us to question the whole system, right? Well, and think about the divide, even in the United States between, you know, so, uh, so I live in Naperville, which is a, a very affluent suburb. Everybody loves the system, the global globalization, free trade, all of that. People are, have big houses, but you don't have to go far away to see people who are on the other side of that globalization wave, and they're very angry with it. I know, I, I, I think it can happen within countries, and you're right, it's also happening globally. 
And if there isn't some way to find a middle ground, the the political pressures are going to grow and grow and grow. And I don't know what that means. If it means, like you said, a shift back to, to nationalism or isolationism, mercantilism, where you're not thinking about open trade, you're thinking about maximizing your own benefit. All of those are, are, are deeply problematic to use our term. Right. And it used to be that the United States coming out, you know, in the 20th century was believing that we, the global economic system, free trade benefits everybody and the United States in particular. And now we've drifted to this point where both, like you said, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are saying capitalism isn't fair to the United States. That's, that's a dramatic shift uh, in terms of what that means for policy. Well, and I, I think about the you know the 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 sort of uh, famed Obama Trump voter, right? The, the, and it yes. fits into this model, right? People who things are not getting better for them, right? Jo- you know, the, there used to be union jobs, there used to be well-paying jobs, and and those jobs have have gone away. And whether it's economic anxiety or whether it's racial tension or whatever you want to say is driving those voters, it all I think comes around to this, right? That I it used to be better for me than it is now. And, and so I, there's, you know, whether it's, you know, an economic system, whether it's immigration, all of this other stuff that, that that's, what's driving this, uh, there, I think, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing conclusions about a whole subclass of people. So it's, it's, you know, I'm painting with yeah. broad strokes, but I think that's part of the, the pushback that that's happening globally in what well, it Brexit too. Right. Yes. And when that happens, I think a point you made earlier, it's easy to point to an other to say that, you know, there's a reason for why this is happening. And we can go back through history and see examples of that, right? When there's economic anxiety, you look to point and blame some other, some group, some minority group or whatever it is. And we're seeing that in the United States. We're seeing it certainly in in Europe right now. And and that has the potential to become a more global phenomenon. Oh, you want to talk about beer? Let's do that. Yeah. (laughs) So, so what do you have in Phil? So I'm having, uh, this is from Foundation Brewing Company, which is in Maine, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh, and this is their epiphany. It's, it's, they call it a Maine IPA. They claim it's not a West Coast IPA. It's not a New England IPA. It's a oh. Maine IPA. It's different. Um, this is, uh, it's not, I guess it's not technically, a, oh, it is a double IPA. Um, and you know how I feel about double IPAs. They caused problems for me in the past, but <laughs> this one's, it's really good. Um, yeah. It's, it's, you know, uh, strong citrus flavors. It's got a little bit of that kind of, you know, piney, you know, uh, whatever, uh, uh, foresty flavor to it. Um, I was reading before I came on, they, I guess they use oats in the brewing process, which makes it a little smoother. Um, It's really nice. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't, has just the right amount of bitterness. It's not like crazy bitter, like a lot of double IPAs are really nice. I, you know, as I've said on here before, I'm not a huge, I like IPAs, not a huge fan of double IPAs. This one's really good. I would absolutely drink another one of these. It, what, to me, what strikes me about the East Coast debate, especially like the New Hampshire, Vermont debate, it's all within the IPA and double IPA yeah. window, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so right. Nobody's talking about a stout or right. even a couple lagers, but it's all, you know, it's all within that. Like everybody's doing IPAs, double IPAs, and how good is that one? Yeah. Um, so, so I also had a, I had an IPA and this is a, a hazy rabbit from Lakefront Brewery out of Milwaukee. So we were up in uh, mm. Wisconsin for the holidays. I've been there. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's right. We did the tour and my brother picked this up and it is, it's solid. It is the one thing. So you're seeing lots of hazy IPAs. The one thing I miss in this is it doesn't have the citrusy to it. Uh, so it's nice and cloudy and it's very drinkable, but it doesn't have that little citrus kick to it. Uh, but otherwise, you know, if you, if you like a, a hazy IPA without the citrus, this one's solid. So, 
So, and if you, again, if you are uh, interested in following our beer reviews, you can go to the Untapped app and, uh, and uh, I think they can friend us, right? Nick always handles this. I, think I know. Can, can we be friends we, on Untapped? We're, we're too old to understand uh, social networking stuff, Bill. We need Nick to hear for that. <laughs> That's right. So, but I, go to Untapped and and can you Google us through Untapped? I don't know, something like that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right, let's jump to our next topic. I'm excited about this one. So, looking back on the Mueller report, while it may seem like ancient history, it was actually in March of 2019 that the Mueller report was released. It wasn't uh, necessary to read the report because the uh, before releasing the report, Attorney General William Barr gave a 20 minute press conference where Barr stated. Nine times that the investigation did not find that President Trump or his campaign had conspired or coordinated with the Russian government to interfere in the 2016 election. Barr's defense stood in contrast with special counsel Robert Mueller's own press conference, where he famously said, quote, if we had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so, unquote. While Trump walked away from the Mueller investigation, many others who were close to Trump did not. There's a long list of Trump aides and associates who were convicted this year of felony charges related to the Mueller investigation, including Roger Stone, Michael Cohen, uh, Paul Manafort, Rick Gates and Michael Flynn. While the world has moved on to impeachment resulting from the Ukraine scandal, I do wonder how history will remember the Mueller investigation. Phil, you you remember the Mueller report, right? Vaguely. <laughs> uh, I, it's kind of remarkable, as you as you said that, that it was only nine months ago. I hadn't mm-hmm. thought about that. That's crazy. It is. I, I, you know, it's, I think that um, a number of things to say about this. One, I, I think that that bar statement at the time – I didn't recognize how significant that was. I think that was did a huge service for Trump in shaping and framing the debate or the narrative that was to come. I, I, he coming out and saying essentially that there's more or less nothing here yeah. um, meant that that became the talking point, and that and that Democrats and even Mueller, as he goes to testify, is is trying to. Uh, he's almost on de- on the defensive, right? <laughs> trying trying yeah. to, uh, in some way, reshape the, what has become the the accepted narrative in in politics. Um, I think that the other part of it, I mean, so how will history remember this? I, I think that I, I suspect that history will look back on this in sort of disbelief that this that this landed with as much of a dud as it as it did. Um, I think the bar. Statement plays a role in that. I think Mueller misjudging the political time uh, plays a role in that. He, he was, he is a man of twenty years ago, in in which you know propriety and doing things the right way um, was essential. And I think you know twenty years ago, his testimony would have been enough for people to connect the dots and run with it. I think it would have been explosive. But in this day and age, he you know his unwillingness to sort of step out a little bit and say that, yes, he has committed crimes. And the only reason we're not doing something is because of the DOJ. Um, he just wasn't willing to do that. And so therefore, it just sort of uh, fizzled. In the grand scheme of things, looking back on it, um, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm pretty shocked that the stuff that's in that report is it is far worse than the than um, the, the the current Ukraine, Ukraine scandal. Yeah. The Ukraine stuff is bad, but I, this I mean the, the the extensiveness of what is laid out in the Mueller report. So the fact that it just sort of fizzled is remarkable to me. Um, and I, beyond even the Trump stuff, just the fact that this report lays out the ways in which Russia 
blatantly interfered in our elections. And the way that that has been so tied up in partisanship and politics that we haven't been able to address that is, I think that is going to be the, you know, 30 years from now, looking back on it, that's going to be the, the sort of jaw dropping aspect of this. I, I think you're you're spot on. I think I think history will be stunned at all of this, right? Because by then, the, you can remove some of the partisanship. And I think the reality mm-hmm. is that what happened here is it got caught up in this partisan dynamic, and it made us unable to see things. But it's hard to underestimate the significance, as you said, of Barr's role in shaping the narrative in all of this, and Mueller's his own unwillingness to do so. Right? The moment called for somebody of Mueller's consequence to say, "Hey." Here's what really happened, right? He could have been that individual, the nonpartisan individual to give the the public a sense of what really transpired. And he was unwilling to do so. He fought it. He wanted his work to speak for itself. And that's not where we are right now. And and you're right. Barr saw that and understood that, that it required him to kind of shape the narrative to say no conspiracy, no collusion. And that held where the report is. I mean, I, I, you go back and. You and I have talked about Lawfare, the Lawfare podcast, which is just wonderful. And they've done this whole series where they go, basically, they break down the whole report, section by section. And it's, when called, you listen- it's called The Report for the listeners who are right, unaware. Yeah. It's really worth listening to. Oh, and again, and they're, they're working directly from the document. So you can listen to what Mueller said, and then you can hear some interpretation of what was said there. It's damning. And both sections are damning. The first section, which talks about the degree to which the Trump campaign was interacting, not necessarily colluding, but right there was there was openness to all of Russian Russian intervention intervention is is disturbing. And the obstruction of justice stuff in the second half is clearly illegal. Right. I mean, it's clear right. that he committed obstruction of justice and the whole political system said, oh, this is it's too much. We can't handle it. And it's just it's it's re- really irritating, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, I think when thinking about like how will history view this? So I, I you know, I. There's only so much you can draw conclusion-wise, but I think back to to Clinton and to Nixon. So Clinton is maybe more useful. So Clinton, you know, goes through the impeachment process, is not convicted, um, and and at the time, partisanship played a big role in that. Right? Democrats were strongly on the side of you know this is an unjust process. Republicans thought he was you know evil and should have been removed from office. And as time has gone on, I, I don't know that the Republican narrative of Clinton has changed all that much. But it feels like the Democratic narrative has yes. in that, you know, there is this recognition that he was a good and effective president. But what he did was deeply problematic from the, yes. the relationship with Lewinsky through the lying, all of that. And maybe it wasn't enough for impeachment, but, you know, this was this was bad. And and so there almost, there has been, it feels like, some distancing from from Bill. Even, you know, Hillary had to deal with that in her election. Um, and I think about so I think about Nixon. Let's assume for a second that Nixon had not been, you know, didn't resign. Um, if he had gone, if impeachment had moved forward and he had been acquitted, I feel like, you know, looking back on it in history, the idea of a president basically orchestrating a break-in to, to gather information on his opponents um, and and nothing happened would it would be. I think we would look back on that now with this disbelief. I can't believe that happened, and I, so that's where I feel like. 
as we get distance from this, regardless of what what people think about Trump as a president, even if people like Trump as a president, um, I, I don't think the history books will will consider him a good president. But even for, for people who like him, I think with some distance and the partisanship, the, the hyper partisan atmosphere, as it fades away a little bit, I can't help but feel like we're going to look back. And there will be Republicans who stand by him, but I feel like there will be a lot who who say. I think there are a lot now, even already, who say yeah. this is. I can't believe this is happening. Well, the other thing I, I love the the comparison to both uh, Clinton and Nixon because both those cases with history, we we just tend to to assume. I think you're right that those impeachments were legitimate. Uh, right. You know, Nixon. Everybody agrees that he, what he did was wrong, and it took some time. But now you're right. Democrats accept that what Clinton did was wrong, not just the not just the perjury, but also the Monica Lewinsky thing. And then a lot of other incidents. I mean, it sounds like his his behavior with women was deeply problematic for years. Right. And so there's there's an right. accountability there that will come to Trump. And I wonder whether with time, even though this impeachment is just about narrowly about the Ukraine scandal, history will likely pull the Mueller report and the Ukraine scandal together because it's not like we're now in the moment we're like, well, this is just about Ukraine. But 25 years from now, the Mueller report will be seen as contributing to this this ten, this desire to want to get Trump out of office. So I think history will see those two as much more intertwined. I- I can't help but think that the that the Ukraine stuff wouldn't be happening without the Mueller report, right? right I mean, because yeah. essentially what it is is Mueller, you know, the, it's 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 the second go at it, right? It's that the Mueller report had just the testimony had just happened. I, I feel like Democrats felt like, how is this not getting more? I, and, and we don't know what happened with the whistleblower and whatnot, but the idea that Trump is then back at it soliciting aid in an, in an election, right, from a foreign government, I feel like that's you know you can't you can't understand what's happening now without. So in that sense, the Mueller report really did matter. It just mattered in ways that were less direct than what we, you know, what we might have expected. Well, that's absolutely right. And when you think about so Trump's, you know, request to the the Ukrainian president Zelensky to investigate Joe Biden, that was part of it. But the other part was also to investigate this, you know, the Ukrainian server and what was going on there and CrowdStrike. And all of that is the idea that it wasn't Russia who was intervening in our election. It was the Ukrainians who were intervening to support Democrats against Donald Trump. So Trump That's saw that. That's not true? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. We got, you got to Google no, it. It's not true. That is <laughs> not true. But so the fact that Trump's, Trump clearly sees them as connected. So his efforts to connect with Ukraine and shift this and make an investigation of what happened there is to reframe the whole Mueller report. And I think you're right. History will see them as completely uh, connected. Uh, and I, I think that's right. Uh, and, and, and history will judge it accordingly. How do you, how do you think history will judge Mueller? Will, will it look back on him fondly in this, in this, like he did his duty, he did it well, or will it look back and be critical because he misjudged? I, I, I've kind of go back and forth on, 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 on that. I, I think I'm most, we don't know, but I'm most curious to see how both Barr and Mueller are treated by history because with, with time, we will see Barr for what he was, especially in this incident, right? He was a, a defender of the president, a defender of the executive branch, and his job as he saw it was to make this go away. Um, Mueller, I think, will be judged fairly harshly for hmm. not seizing the moment, right? And his report hmm. was exhaustive. But all it would have taken was him to say a couple things uh, to say that, yes, what the president did was inappropriate. And that would have shifted the entire narrative. It would have put pressure on Republicans to pursue uh, impeachment. I, I think I'm guessing they will see him as missing an important opportunity. Uh, and, and I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that's my guess. 
Well, and, and to do comparisons, right? If you go back to the the Star report, you know, Clinton wasn't it wasn't impeached, but Star was clear about this, this, and you know, yeah. X, Y, and Z, and that I, you have to feel like without that, there wouldn't have been anything, right? So I, there wouldn't have been an impeachment process um, at all. It feels like he really did shape the the way it moved forward. Um, and that's right. And I, I'm guessing that Robert Mueller didn't want to be Ken Starr. He didn't right, want to be right. seen as his political figure. So he wanted to say, let me let my work speak for itself. But there's real danger in that, right? I mean, the, this this matters for presidency, for history. And I think Mueller was, was fighting the last impeachment, not the current one. How, how far do you think we would have to go back in time for the Mueller report to have had the impact that Mueller thought it would? Because I, I, my first thought is, twenty years ago, it would have it would have made had an impact. But I think I, in the era of Clinton, clearly partisanship was already at play, not to the extent that it is today. Yeah, I feel like in the era of Nixon, the Mueller report would have been a bombshell, right? If we went back forty, fifty years, I, I'm, I'm it's it's an interesting exercise in my mind to think about like where was the turning point? And there's no doubt that it's accelerated under Trump, right? In the last ten years, but it feels like. There is some point. Would it 15 years ago before the the Obama administration and the kind of partisan nature of politics, would it have had an impact in 2000? Or do we have to go back to the 70s for the for Mueller's approach to have been effective? I think the, the one factor that or the one variable that might be so significant is Fox News, right? Because you have yeah. with Fox News, they are able to be talking points for the president. They're able to put this narrative out there. And that didn't exist either for Clinton. It was just beginning there, but certainly right. for Nixon. So for me, it is you know, to have a, a, a very influential TV network that can reframe all of this in the president's yeah. interest strikes me as, you know, if you had Fox News during the, uh, you know, those two previous impeachments, it might have been very, very different. Yeah. I, I think we underestimate the degree to which not just social media, but Fox News in particular. I think you're right. They're so powerful. I think you're right. Yep. Oh, that was good. All right, the bell rings. good. <laughs> so, all right, our next topic. 2019 will go down as a year in which identity politics took center stage in both good and bad ways. In January, the most diverse class of politicians in history was sworn into the House of Representatives. The 116th Congress has more women, racial and ethnic minorities, LGBT Americans than any previous Congress. You will also likely remember in July when President Trump took to Twitter to tell uh, four Democratic Congresswomen, all minorities, to, quote, go back to where they came from, despite the fact that three of the four were born in the United States. Additionally, as, as Phil mentioned earlier, Pete Buttigieg became the first openly gay candidate to top the polls. In November, Buttigieg was leading in Iowa and New Hampshire, according to the Real uh, Clear Politics polling average. 2019 also saw an increase in reported incidents of violence against LGBT people, people of color, and Jewish people, according to the Anti-Defamation League. Looking forward to the 2020 election, it's clear that Trump will be doubling down on the message that have made him such a favorite with conservative Christians, rural Americans, white working class voters, but that have drawn strong criticism from women, people of color, and younger Americans. Phil, identity politics appears to be the central fault line in American politics today. So what's your thoughts on all of this? Um, you know, yeah, I, I, there was an article in the New York Times recently that talked about uh, this in American politics, it, it specifically that today with a series of like five or six questions and it's, you know, what's your it's like um, race, ethnicity, basically, uh, um, whether you're religious or not. Um, education, maybe income. There, there are a series of, you know, three, four, five questions. And with that, those questions alone, you can pretty much 
with a high rate of success predict whether someone's a Republican or a Democrat. That's stunning. And that that and and that that is new. That you know we we talk about in in political science, right? There's thing there are things like. Um, the gender gap, right? And, and the gender gap exists in that men and women viewed issues differently. But the gender gap is, it's big in some ways, but in other ways, it's pretty small, right? It's like a you know, 55-45 split on, you know, women are more likely to be Democrats, men are likely to be Republicans. So it's like a probabilistic thing. And it feels like now, increasingly, it's, it's not this like, you know, slightly more likely. It is that your identity is the single biggest predictor of of how you view politics or where you fall in politics. And that's really bad because <laughs> it means that politics isn't about ideas anymore. It's not yeah. about policies. It's not about, you know, what's the best approach to something. It's just about us versus them. Um, the thing that I and I, I'm interested to kind of hear what, what you think about this. The, the thing that I kind of go back and forth on is whether or not this is the new normal or whether this is just a, a small blip. Um, because mm-hmm. if if politics is about identity, the, the Trump approach to politics is effective today. But 30 years from now, it won't be effective anymore because of demographic changes, because of, you know, there, it's you already see, I mean, certainly, you know, uh, ethnicity or race plays a role in this and in, in that, you know, white people are the core of, of Trump's um, base, but it's also a generational thing, right? And that, you know, younger, younger Americans, um, are far more, you know, issues like the environment and gay marriage and, 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 you know, abortion rights are, are not the divisive issues that they were for previous generations. And so it feels like this is in some ways, I don't, it's, I, I don't know if it's overstating it to say it's kind of the last, you know, gasp. It's the, it's the, this, this group that's trying to hold on to power. Um, and so I could see, you know, 20, 30 years from now that, that shifting and that identity is not enough 30 years from now for Republicans to hold on to power. So they have to ship back, to, shift back to ideas to try to win people over. But I don't know. I don't know if damage will be done by then. I don't know if this is, you know, that it could be that Republicans maintain power by expanding their idea of identity. I mean, in American history, this has been the case, right? That Italians didn't used to be white. And then when it was important, you know, they became white as as we considered others to be outsiders. And so I I don't know. What do you think? I I think you're spot on. Demographic change is the factor that will drive politics for the next, I don't know, generation. And I'm afraid that it's not going to be driven in a good way because you think about the forces and pressures that are in play right now. They're only going to increase. So if you think about what we've seen is that we're drifting towards a majority minority country. And that has been one of the most concerning elements uh, to white evangelical Christians, to white Christians in general, rural Christians, right? Uh, that group sees their position of power being threatened. And I, 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 I understand that threat. But the groups on the other side, the groups who feel like they've been pushing for their own rights, women, people of color, LGBT, like those groups are not going to stop pushing, right? And I, I understand their claims as well. They say, hey, we've been part of a political system that has kept us on the kept us on the outside and it's important that we are finally able to attain some sense of equality so they're going to genuinely be pushing and as that push occurs the other side is going to feel more and more threatened so even though Donald Trump may be an accelerant to all of this this is this is going to keep being at play and my fear yeah. is that even as the, the the white evangelical community gets a smaller and smaller percentage of the American political system, they're going to be more prominent, and that's going to cause them to play off identity politics in a more dramatic way. They'll still be the largest group in this political system. 
Right. So I, 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 I feel like it's going to get way worse before it's going to get better. I think you're right. I, I think this election in particular is going to be really nasty. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think this is this is, uh, you know, a lot of the questions we've talked about, about, you know, democracy and international institutions, yeah. about, you know, identity and what it means to be an American, about all, you know, all of this stuff is kind of, I mean, it's it's laying not very far below the surface of this election. Right. And and so I, I think it's going to be it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be a fun year um, in in politics, um, and, but I think you're right, right? As the the way, and this is where the Fox News stuff comes into it as well, and and, and MSNBC as well. But I, Fox News far, I think, is is of a different caliber. They're much more influential than when, MSNBC. When, yeah, right. It's when the stakes increase, right? When when we start talking, and it feels like over the last twenty years, we've talked about politics. We talk about the stakes as this sort of all or nothing, good versus evil. And when the stakes increase, when the other side winning is destructive to the entire way of life, right? <laughs> that 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 it is the person who is you know the opposition winning is not that hey boy, they they were more convincing this time, we got to do better in two years, but instead evil taking over, then it justifies the use of, of sort of escalated tactics, which is what it feels like has been happening in, in American politics, That's right? Trump, the idea right? of abandoning He's, norms. Yeah. yeah, and McConnell, right? I mean, a lot of this stuff is, is that, you know, when the stakes are high enough, then winning becomes the, the, the goal, right? Because you need to win at all costs. And that's, it, it, I, yeah, I mean, I, the question is, and this can't, this era of politics, it seems like can't last. Um, the question is, can it survive? Can we survive? Can this current system survive this, this, you know, period of, of, you know, escalating tactics um, and, and kind of, I don't know, re regroup afterwards. Well, you use the word freedom, right? That's really important because you're seeing both, uh, not both sides. I think it's more complicated than that, but you're seeing all groups use that term. So on the right now, uh, evangel- evangelical Christians, white evangelical Christians are using the term religious freedom. They see this as a battle for their ability to pursue their beliefs, their freedom. And that right now what's happening is that the government is pushing back against them. It explains some of the sense of fear and threat they feel. They really do feel like, their religious freedoms are impinged upon. But the reality is that bumps up against uh, groups that are saying like, no, you know, we have to have the right, you know, gay marriage and all of these, the the other issues, like these are our own freedoms, whether we're talking about minority rights or women's rights, um, something's got to give. And I'm not sure how that plays out. I I, I really think that this is going to be something that I wish Tom was here because I I fear it's going to be thrown to the courts. And we're going to say right. we can't handle it as a democracy. So we're going to hope that this, you know, this institution of nine members can solve all of our problems. And I, I, I don't think they can. It's an interesting, interesting point, because it feels like the court has been asked to do that in other times, whether it's the civil rights movement in which they're having to make decisions that that are partisan, right? They're political decisions. Uh, but. I, this does feel a little different, right? I mean, it feels like the the thing the court has been able to do for a really long time is to try to keep its distance from partisan politics. And as all of these issues become, as we go back to, if it's all about identity politics, it's not about the issues at play anymore. If it's not about essential freedoms or it's not about, you know, it is instead about who gets to be an American or who gets to be in power or whose rights matter. Um, that's, it's hard for the court to stay nonpartisan. And, and then if you, if, if the court becomes in, in bat, you know, uh, whatever wrapped up in all yeah. of this, then you have another institution that gets undermined. 
This sounds really depressing, I though. Know, it's really, it's better. It's better than this, right? <laughs> no, no, it could get much worse. <laughs> and I think Tom has always done a really good job on the on the on the podcast to talk about the fact that the court doesn't want to be perceived as partisan, and John Roberts in particular wants to avoid this. But all of those people who are putting these justices in place are being driven by partisan motivations right. and identity motivations. So I wonder how long the court will be able to to avoid that tendency. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting as we think about this broader identity debate is even though the, the evangelical white, white evangelical Christian movement is becoming more organized, I think there's an assumption that the other side is as well, but that's not the case, right? You think about right. on the left, the, you know, the Latino group is very, very different from African-Americans, which is different from gay groups. I mean, there's all these different, it is a, it may be a big tent, but there are multiple different interests and they don't always see the issues in the same way. So it's much more difficult for the, for those groups on the left to organize under one political heading. So looking to, the, as you talk about that, yeah. I can't, we, we've mentioned a few times over the couple of years we've been doing this, po- we've been doing this podcast for almost three years I now. Know, it's great. Right? Yeah. That's crazy. I, we've mentioned a few times over those three years, the Stephen Skoranek stuff, the idea of these sort of coalitions of voters that come together. Yeah. Um, and, and we've talked about the idea of Trump as maybe the, I forget what the term is, the, the president sort of at the end of a coalition that we've have, have had essentially 40 years of Republican rule in American politics. But those coalitions of essentially, you know, Southern, um, you had sort of the, the Southern, former Southern Democrats, you have people, um, the evangelical movement, you have sort of big conservative businessmen, you have all of these different groups that don't necessarily have a whole lot in common, um, who were able to be sort of put together into this voting group that kept Republicans in power. And what has happened in the last few years is that their goals are no longer like it's been so long that, you know, conservative Christians are like, I'm tired of tax cuts, right? When are you going to give me my abortion ban? Right. Um, and and so what ends up happening, you know, Jimmy Carter was the last Democrat that sort of the, led to the the destruction or the the collapse of this Democratic um, group that that was in place from essentially FDR through through Carter. All that stuff you just mentioned on the Democratic side, these these groups that don't seem to have much in common, but they do have a common sort of cause right now. And I, I could totally see that emerging as this new voting coalition between, again, you know, uh, the, the gay community, um, minority groups, you know, environmental groups, yes. you know, sort of progressive, uh, you know, the young progressive white Americans, like all these different groups that come together. And I could see that being a powerful voting block for 20, 30 years, yes. right? And then exactly what you're talking about is at some point, the differences in sort of the expectations, what an environmentalist wants versus what someone who's concerned about African-American rights wants, they're going to come to heads at some point. And it'll be really interesting to, who knows if that will play out, but I can, I could, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see that be the sort of next 30 years of American politics. You could see what's playing out in California right now play out larger, especially we've talked yeah. about Texas. If, if demographic change in Texas and a handful of other states occur where those flip to democratic states suddenly the united states becomes california where there is a majority who are voting on the left uh and a rel- and an angry and isolated uh right right you know right wing minority um and and again how do those ha- how do those groups on the left handle political power yeah it's it's really interesting oh yeah this is good all right we got oh we got another one we got got to move on so, all right. So many have referred to 2019 as the year of the protest, yet in many ways, it's emblematic of the entire past decade. Since we are looking back, we thought it might be useful to reflect on the entire decade of the 2010s. It was a decade of protest and revolts. 
These revolts targeted many things, elites, economic and social equality, global institutions, and even liberal democracy itself. The status quo was under attack. The decade began with the Arab Spring protests and the Occupy movement and is ending with the swell of anti-government demonstrations in India, Iraq, Lebanon, Hong Kong, Latin America, parts of Europe and beyond. It was a decade that saw the United States appear to grow tired of its leadership role and China eagerly stepping in to fill that gap. Why don't we spend a few minutes reflecting on the decade? Phil, where do you want to begin? Uh, you know, I, as I thought about this and as I've kind of looked at articles over the last couple of days, sort of looking back on the decade, I, I, the, I guess the first thing I want to say is I, I was sort of blown away by – I had forgotten how much had happened yes. in the last 10 years. I mean, when you consider um, – you know, this, well, the evolution of the debate on guns, the legalization of, this is just in the US, legalization of, of gay marriage, Obamacare and healthcare debates, like all of that has happened. The Occupy movement, the Tea Party movement, like all of this has happened in the last 10 years. Um, you know, not to mention the rise of Trump and sort of the reshaping of the Republican Populism, Party. Populism, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of, and that doesn't even get into international politics at all. I, the part that I, I, keep coming back to is how much of those it, so maybe we can start with domestic politics and then we can expand to international how much of those how many of those issues in domestic politics not all of them but most of them in some way point back to Barack Obama as president mm -hmm. like it feels like that's the defining moment right and, and it's partly his policies but more i mean we just talked about yes. identity politics right how much of this has to do with the first I mean, progressive, but also, you know, black American president and, and, and the, the sort of shift in, in politics that has to do with that. And, and I feel like, you know, when we look back on the 2010s, I, the, the, the sort of, uh, the, the, the evolution of the Republican party, you know, the, the idea that we're going to oppose essentially everything that he does and, and, and the, the shift in identity, it feels like a lot of that has to do with, with him. Yeah. Right. And, and I don't, I don't know, maybe that's, I don't know if that's giving him too much credit or not enough credit for the the ideas and stuff that he presented, but it feels like that's sort of the defining. Like, if I were giving a political man of the decade, right, it's it's Barack Obama because good or bad, right, on both sides of the aisle, he is shaping his his legacy is what's shaping this debate. It's really interesting, and, and and it made me think. So in two thousand and seven, when he was so election night two thousand seven. Um, I was in Chicago and I actually had a ticket to go to the, uh, you know, the election night party in Chicago where Obama won. And I, and I remember that feeling and it was just, it was unbelievable how the excitement and it, it, it I thought at that night it spread beyond just Democrat and Republican, that even Republicans who wanted John McCain to win were on some level happy that, you know, we had finally elected an African-American man. Uh, you're shaking your head. <laughs> you, you were wrong. Okay. Some were, some were, at least that the country could do this. But you're right in the mm -hmm. sense that it quickly shifted to being about who he was and what this meant for the country. And I think that is the, you know, we talk about those paradigm shaping moments that felt like one. And and we had been drifting towards that. And then this clarified things for a lot of America about what this difference was. And, and again, to go back to our previous topic, identity politics quickly emerged. Yeah. And, and so much occurred both domestically and internationally after that. And and not to give, I don't want to give Barack Obama a free pass. Like this isn't just us cheering on Barack Obama. Yeah. Like, I, I think part of it is also the rhetoric. He, I mean, the context of him, and I realize him getting elected goes back to prior to the to 10 years ago, but 
part of him getting elected was also the the critical rhetoric of 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 George Bush, right? His foreign policy and all of this other stuff was this shift that that Barack Obama was was making about you know liberal institutionalism and all sorts of other things. Um, and so you know he, he there's no doubt that he, the ideas that he was putting out there contributed to it. But I I do feel like you know again in a in a looking back episode, history how will history look back on it? It feels like that. That's going to be a really significant defining moment in American history. The, the other thing that, that strikes me about all of this is that you're you're right that protest and violence, not violence, but uh, pushback occurred in a variety of different ways, some of which was really good. I mean, you could sit back and say, like, mm-hmm. some of the groups that were pushing for their rights deserve those rights, both both domestically and internationally. But many of those who were protesting were attacking the very system that we've grown accustomed to, the, you know, the liberal international order, liberalism, This mm-hmm. not like Democrat-Republican liberalism, but the idea that, you know, you have a, a democracy and you care about people's rights. That that system is under attack. And it makes me wonder whether the new form of democracy is protest because we've gotten so frustrated with our political institutions, both domestically, but also internationally, globally, that this is how we, we speak now. We, we organize yeah. mass protest uh, and we push back, but we don't try to work within those those traditional institutions anymore. And I, I, I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I don't know what it's- to think. I, I think it's uh, it's good that people are protesting, right? I mean, that's that's a sign of an engaged population. But it feels like I, I think in general it's bad okay. because it's happening on both sides, right? Whether it's the whether it's you know Tea Party and Trump rallies on the right, whether it's you know the Occupy movement or the you know the um, the, the women's march on the on the left, right? There have been lots of protests on both sides, but it does. I, I think you're right. I think. I don't think it protests always mean this, but it feels a little bit like in this era over the last 10 years, the protests have felt like people are protesting because they think the system mm-hmm. is not going to actually do anything, right? That the only way to get something done is to essentially bypass the system. Um, and that's, that is, uh, you know, a, a, a good, strong system that has, you know, the support of people should, people should use the system to, you know, you should run for office, right. you should try to do all these other things. And the extent to which people feel the need to go outside of the political system to achieve their goals, whatever the cause, it could be that the system's not working, it could be that people, you know, it, it could be the enhanced partisanship, it could be the social media, it could be lots of stuff. But whatever the reason is that's leading people to that, the the outcome of that, um, if the protests are to get the system to respond, that's one thing. But if the protests are because you have given up on the system, that that doesn't bode well for for the future no. of things. Well, and because when it, if it's in your interest, you argue that this is democracy, right? We are pushing the system in our interest. But the reality is, as you noted, is that we're moving outside of that system. And so all, everybody involved, whatever the nature of the protest is, is saying the system can't address my needs anymore. So I have to go in this extra extrajudicial way. And yeah, that that the net effect of that is it undermines the system itself, whether we're talking about the American democracy or the liberal international order. All of that is being undermined by multiple of these 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 protests, many of which I agree with. But yeah, I think the, the net effect is bad for the system. 
Now, you and I are both really young, mm. and so I, I don't uh, you more so than me. <laughs> <laughs> I, the comparison that I think of is is the you know you think back to the '60s, right, which was this era of lots of protests, whether it was you know outside the Democratic National Convention, whether it was you know anti-war protests, all sorts of stuff. Um, and I, I, I would be interested. It would be interesting to. I, and I don't feel you know knowledgeable enough to make that comparison. Um, you know, when I talk to people who lived through that era, I, I hear a lot of people say it was way worse then. Um, and so, you know, I, who knows, right? Maybe it's just that we've never been through something sure. like this and, and, and it won't actually be, it's not actually as bad as it, as it might seem. I, well, but when you think about earlier in the podcast, you talked about, you know, the Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, both of which attacking the, the free market system. I, my fear is that nobody believes in the system anymore, except for a handful yeah. of centrist Democrats and centrist Republicans. Everybody else says the system is broken. Yeah. And, and we forget, I mean, if it, this is an exaggeration, but you go back to Hobbes, right? Hobbes talks about anarchy and the lack of a system to govern society, a social contract. It feels as if we're drifting in a direction where we're questioning the social contract that we've created. And when we upend that, that has never historically been a particularly mm -hmm. peaceful time. So I, yeah. I don't know. Maybe we find maybe Joe Biden will fix it all. Joe Biden will be the, the you know, the, the the soft cream that moves us in a better direction. But I don't know. I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm skeptical. <laughs> Should, I, I don't know how much time we have left on that. We've talked all domestic. Should we talk? I mean, we yeah. talked a little international about the, the de degradation of international norms and whatnot. But uh, I mean, what do you I'll, I'll throw it yeah. to you. I mean, if you're looking at the last 10 years internationally, uh, I mean, what's your what are your thoughts? I mean, you do see the protests happening internationally as well. That's the counter effect to the populism that we've we've seen in some ways. I think that a good microcosm of all of this is Hong Kong right now. So Hong Kong is pushing back against China saying that, you know, we believe in democracy. We want to have a say in our political system. I think what happens in, in Hong Kong might tell us what's going to happen globally. Hmm. And my fear is that China is going to find a way, whether whether it's it's more repressive or whether it's more subtle to, to squash those democratic democratic rights in Hong Kong, same thing in Taiwan. The, the, the way in which the China plays out is, is so important because they're so powerful. They're, they're, they're essentially a global hegemon right now. And they're going to they're going to play a role in redefining these international norms. And it's not going to be in the same way that the United States has. So so I, I, I feel like the the protest movement is is going to be dictated by global power, and and China is just the, such a central actor in all of this. So I, I this made you're talking about this made sparked something yeah. in my head. If I remember correctly, your your dissertation work was on on norms yeah. in international politics, right. right? And about uh, the 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 extent to which essentially correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, but it was it was something along the lines of the extent to which the US sort of, you know, had had fostered these new norms internationally uh, about self determination and against intervention. And so the US still intervened throughout the Cold <laughs> yes. War, but they did it covertly, right? You had to pretend that you you cared about human rights and democracy. You had and a all good this. memory you just did it. Yeah. So <laughs> it was a it was a brilliant piece, <laughs> yes, if I remember yes. correctly. So I what that makes me think about with with Hong Kong is that it's not just about whether or not China will intervene in Hong Kong, but how they intervene. So if, if they squash the uprising in Hong Kong, but they feel the need to do it in a way to in some way hide it or to to clean, you know, make it look not as bad, you know, they're going to they're going to do it covertly or quietly, then maybe those those international norms and expectations of human rights and, and democracy still matter 
even if, you know, Hong Kong, so Hong Kong still feels the need to pretend they're not crushing human rights. If they just outright do it without concern for what the international community, that might be a much worse sign for the state of international norms and democracy. You just take it to be a very happy place, Phil, right? I mean, because it makes me, <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think of so back in grad school, was it uh, was it Gilpin who wrote the book After Hegemony? Do, I, I think that's yeah, right. So, so he, he talked about what happens after a global hegemon leaves leaves the international system. And one of the things he said is that some of these norms will stick around. They're sticky. And so China, that may be an example where this is no longer 1989 or Tiananmen Square, where China felt comfortable just mowing down people to say, you're threatening us. We're going to solve that problem. How they handle Hong Kong may be indicative of the degree to which those norms are sticky. And if they feel the pressure to say, you know, we want to we want to squash democracy, but we're going to do so in a more reasonable way. That is a it's a win, right? I mean, it's it's still bad, yep. but it is something sticks around. Uh, that makes me feel good, Phil. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> if next week they roll the tanks in out in the <laughs> right. open, then 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 we'll have to reevaluate. Right. And so there's part of me that you know we're, we talk about the day to day stuff, but at the end of the day, for international politics, you know, it, it really is global power, and we're we're in the midst of a, a shift where the United States isn't going away. But China is asserting itself, and and that yeah. those are the most important things. You know, the day to day stuff will will shift one way or the other. But but power power is what matters, right? The strong do what they will, the weak accept what they must. Yeah. So, all right, our final topic. So predictions. Is that wait 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 was that Thucydides? Yeah, yeah. All right, we finally just pulling that out of my head. I just wanted to make yeah, sure no, we finally was... Thucydides has finally made its way into the podcast. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that was a signed reading, but I'm also pretty sure I didn't read it. So <laughs> the history of the Peloponnesian War, a wonderful piece, very long. <laughs> the Melian dialogue is the best part. So, all right, so we've done a lot of looking back, and now it's time to make some predictions for the future. So why don't we go around the table, and the table doesn't include Nick anymore, so it's just you and I. <laughs> so and make a prediction or two about what we're what we're predicting 2020 will bring. Uh, to world politics. So Phil, as, as you think about what's coming next, is there, is there anything that, that strikes you as, you know, where we're heading? Well, so the first thing that I think of when this topic comes up is that if 2019 taught me anything, it's to question my ability to predict. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Political science should be really good at predicting things. And I feel like the the, the last 20 years, but the last 10 years in particular, um, have shown the extent to which we have a long ways to come in our ability to predict things. Yes. Um, I, you know, I, 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 this is a, there are times in my in my life or in my career where I would have felt pretty confident about predicting what's going to happen. And and the era of Trump and international politics and Brexit and all this other stuff leaves me I I don't know I don't know. I mean I and, and it certainly leaves me thinking uh that I that any predictions I have I don't have a tremendous amount of confidence in, right? So I I mean I can think about American politics and I can say um I would feel, you know, if I had to, if I were betting money, right, if I were going on predict it and placing a bet, I would bet that a Democrat's going to win the presidential election next year. But, I, you know, I I do that with, you know, 60% confidence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the same thing with like international institutions. I feel like that, uh, that um, you know, international norms and human rights and international institutions have continued to evolve in what I view as the correct direction. Uh, and I feel like they'll, they'll work, they'll survive this period of, of tumult, but I feel that with about a 60% level of confidence, um, which isn't a good no. feeling when you go to, when you, you know, when you lay down at night and, and think about the future of international politics, I, 
I don't know. I mean, do you you probably have some concrete predictions. Well, I know. I, I, th- I think you're right. You brought up a good point because there's this really fascinating debate between political scientists and historians where political scientists, we think we are scientists and that, you know, in the same way that a chemist or a biologist and that if you put variables together, you can see some patterns and outcomes. And so political scientists like to say, well, if you put variables together, you can make some educated guesses about, you know, what's going to happen. And, and political scientists are terrible with predictions. Like nobody saw the end of the Cold War. Nobody saw all, you know, things that play out the way they do. So I, I, I appreciate your skepticism. One thing I would say is, is we were talking about Trump. I think it's, I think it's unlikely that Trump is going to win the presidency, not like 80, 20, but you know, like you said, 60, 40, I think it's unlikely that Trump wins the presidency, but I think Trumpism continues. And that, that scares me a little bit to think about how is that going to play out? Even if he is, if he is defeated, in the presidential election, what is Trump going to do moving forward? So let's assume in November, you know, he's defeated and whether it's Biden or Buttigieg or whoever it is, is, is the next president. What's going to what is how is Trump going to respond to that? He is not going to be a traditional president who goes away quietly. I mean, think about Obama and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton. All previous presidents go away and they, they kind of hide themselves and they build a library. That's not going to be Trump. So what will, you know, a post president Trump be and I'm guessing it's right. going to be, you know, engaged on Fox News or his own network. And I, I don't know what that does to the political system, but it troubles me. <laughs> Think, thinking about Barack Obama continuously tweeting throughout this about, you know, <laughs> right. how terrible Trump is and wasn't I so much better and how he's destroyed. Like, like the idea of what how that would have taken a already tense time in American politics and ratcheted it up. And I think that's yeah. that's what I think you're right. I mean, I, the, the idea of, you know, how will he handle if he loses? How will he handle that loss? First of all, just in the short term, but then you're exactly right. The long term, he's not going no. away, right? He's going to he's going to he's his Twitter account will be as active as ever. He's going to be pushing his brand. And yeah, in some ways, he's he's it's what he wants to do. So if you want to be a critic of the system, being in power is frustrating, right? I mean, he, you know, he criticizes the deep state, he attacks the system and all of that, but it's hard to do when you lead that system and, and being kicked out of it might liberate him in a way that is really important. And the other thing I think about is that you've, you've made this point many times, the Republican party and and political parties in general, aren't driven by the, the elites anymore. They're driven by the masses and Trump is smart enough to have connected with those masses. So his influence is going to be dramatic. And I don't know where the Republican party moves forward. Yeah, it'll be that'll be interesting to see. And also, like if he if he if he loses, that's again an yeah, if. Right. Um, you know, what, how old is he? He's he's what early seventies, yeah, mid seventies. Yeah, right. Sounds right. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past him to if, even if he lost to turn around and run again in four oh, years. Oh, sure, uh, it, which he could do. Um, and if he can hold on to the Republican Party in that time, right? I mean, that that's that's yeah. Oh, that's the fir- what are you? What about in? That's the first Go time ahead. I thought about that. You're right. He could lose and still be, I mean, Joe Biden, Joe Biden will be older than Trump would be in 2024. You're right. right. And could somebody beat him that? F- oh, I'm gonna have to journal about that tonight, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> what about internationally? Do you have, what do you see in the, well, so uh, I guess while yeah. we're domestically real quickly, who, who's your prediction? Who's the democratic, who wins the democratic primary? I still think you're, if the smart money is on Biden, but I think my second candidate is Buttigieg. So I, I really feel hmm. like he has the potential to, to make that run, especially if he does well early. I, I feel though it's, I feel it's down to those two. What about you? Where are you, where are you leaning? I don't know. Yeah. I, I still, I, uh, um, I, 
my my tendency is to, again watching people here locally. I think that there's a chance that Elizabeth Warren pulls out of this slump and still pulls people together. She's you know when she's campaigning, she has a message that resonates with people. I, I just I see it you know when she doesn't she got bogged down in the Medicare for all stuff. And, but the overall message I I could see her now, the problem is I see she and Bernie kind of splitting that progressive vote in a way that might, that might hurt her. I I suppose this, I suppose the smart money is still Biden. I just can't imagine that he's, if if I had to, if I had to bet Biden or the pool, I would bet the pool. I would bet someone other than Biden's going to pull this off. That's interesting. That's a great, that's Um, a great question. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like in the yeah. old golf days, you would say Tiger versus the, you know, the, everybody else. And yeah, I yeah. think you're, yeah, it's an interesting question. I still would put money on Biden, but we'll know so much more four months from now where everybody's at. Yeah. So you were saying yeah. internationally, yeah. what one prediction I would make. So if I had to make a prediction internationally, I would bet that Trump and Kim Jong-un fall out of love in the next six months. <laughs> So well, I, I think that's a safe bet. But what does that mean? So Kim Jong-un has started like threatening to, yes. you know, he's back to threatening to nuke us and, do, and doing tests and all sorts of stuff. What, Like where do you a year from now, as Trump is either as ra- wrapping up either his first term or his only term, where do you think things stand? So I think I think both North Korea and Iran have some parallels here. Both are starting to push back against the United States because they're in such dire situations. So North Korea, there's there's real no I think they've figured out that the United States is not going to release sanctions on them. So it's in their interest to be difficult and troublemakers. That's what Iran has been doing. So I. The question for me is then how does Trump respond to that? Does he go back to the fire and fury stuff of saying, you know, we're going to totally end North Korea? How do you do that with somebody that you've fallen in love with? Right. I I don't know. I think Trump can easily flip that switch. But my guess is that a lot of the next year of of U.S. foreign policy is going to be navigating this issue of how to deal with North Korea and how to deal with Iran. Which do you think plays better with his base? So if you're at a Trump rally... And if you're thinking of Trump voters, what plays better? Obviously, I think the escalated rhetoric with Iran plays well with with the sort of Trump's base. But with North Korea, is it the the is it the fire and fury, or is it the I've gotten more done than any other president in terms of negotiating with Kim Jong? Which one plays better? With them? I wonder what I, I think that agitating North Korea has to freak everybody out. Uh, and I wonder whether his base would not also be freaked out about this, the potential of, of a major war. Iran is an easier thing. I mean, it's, it's a really complicated issue. And Middle East is way more complex than than North Korea. But but North Korea has the potential to trouble an entire political system. And Trump has this impulse of not wanting to, you know, to talk big, but not really follow through. So I, it strikes me that I don't know if his base is going to love him ratcheting the rhetoric up with North Korea. I, I think the substance actually doesn't matter. And and I think that that's not true of Trump's base. I think that's true of Americans in general. They, they just don't, you know, they care about North Korea, but it's, you know, 34th on their list of things that they're thinking about when they're voting. And so in some ways I think about which persona is it that Trump wants to put out to, is it the, I don't take shit off of anybody, in which case it's the fire and fury approach. If it's the, I'm the deal maker and I get stuff done, then it's the, we're, we're going to, we're going to work on, on things. And I don't know which one I, I've, I've sort of feel like it depends on, you know, when he wakes up in the morning, how he's feeling, which one he, he embraces. Right. And how many love letters Kim Jong-un sends to him. I mean, that's where we're at right, right. now. It's, it's no longer the, you know, the foreign policy elites making these decisions. It really is left up to the president. And I, I, I as whether one is a Democrat or Republican, it should never be left up to one individual. They should surround themselves with experts. 
So as we're as we're recording this, the the U.S. embassy in Iraq is under siege um, from Iranian-backed militias. Trump has said that you know we're gonna we're gonna do something about it, and that's not uh, what did he say? It's not a. Uh, it's not, he, he said it's a threat. Yes. It's not a. Uh, anyway, he he said it's a. He's, yeah. And then he ended it with anyway. Happy New Year. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, what are the odds? That in the next year, in in 2020, there is some sort of violent interaction between U.S. forces and Iranian forces. Whether it's a military, whether it's an airstrike, whether it's you know Iranian-backed militia, like what what are the chances that this actually escalates to violence in the next so year? So by, by violence, you mean any kind of incident, right? So we're we're not that doesn't necessarily mean war, but there is some sort of exchange. Yeah, I would say, and I maybe I, I don't know. Maybe I should take militias out of it because if if it's you know Iranian-backed militias attacking something in in Iraq, I mean like that that U.S. and Iran escalates in some way to the to the point of of force. If John Bolton was still in the administration, it would be mm-hmm. higher because I think that's what Trump yeah. needs. My guess is I would I would put it at forty percent. That there, I mean, that, mm. that which is st- that's, that's still scary. That's pretty terrifying. <laughs> well, yeah. because eventually, we've talked about this before. Eventually, your rhetoric traps you, and it feels to me like Trump has finally brought this to a point in both incidents, both North Korea and Iran, where something has to happen. And so, how does he find his way out of that without doing something? I, I think they're going to have to do something. And my fear is, once you do something, it's hard to pull back. Whether we're talking, you know, we talked about World War One, all of that, any of the, these wars, Vietnam. Once you start something, it's hard to undo that. Do you think Iran fits the general Trump model of escalating and then like there's a lot of evidence that he doesn't want to send troops. Yes. He doesn't want to be responsible for this. And if you follow the North Korea model or even some other models, it's escalate to the point of like we're on the brink of war. And then you quickly switch the rhetoric to I'm going to make a deal and bring us back. I'm the one who saved us from war. And if uh, the Iranian regime is a little different as well, but I, I don't, what are the chances that that actually is what plays I, I out? I think there's a lot of similarities between Iran and North Korea and that the sense that they're both facing these sanctions. They both realize Trump may or may not get reelected. They, they both realize that he wants some kind of deal. And if he can get a deal, whatever that deal may be, it doesn't have to be of substance. He's likely to take it. So no, you're right that they're, you know, Iran and North Korea appreciate the degree to which Trump is, might be willing to, to get something just for political reasons. I, I, and and I, in some ways I'm, I'm happy because I think that could be better. I feel like the chance for chance of misperception or some sort of error leading to conflict is greater in Iran than North Korea. Do you, am I wrong in that? Because it feels like in in North Korea, it's just I mean, it's not just Kim. He has people around him as well. But I, I don't I, the the maybe no, I'm wrong on right. that. It would be interesting to talk to an Iran expert and a, and a North Korea expert. And the on one that. the one major difference there is that our North Korea has nuclear weapons, right? So you're you're always going to be yeah. much more cautious there. the The ability of of North Korea to to strike South Korea and Japan, all of that is going to bring caution that may not exist in Iran. So I no, I think you're absolutely right. The the likelihood of an incident spiraling out of control in Iran is much higher than North Korea. This has been depressing, Phil. We've had a lot of very yeah. bad bad scenarios play out any other bold predictions for the next year i'm out (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this has been fun has been good it's been depressing but it's been fun we've reflected well on the year and the decade so all right so we've gone long so we should we should wrap up and let me see here so nick has uh he has the barstool politics outro look listen to that we've got it right 
You're doing so I'm, good, I'm very Bill. Pleased. So, so again, if you've enjoyed the podcast, follow us on social media: Barstool Paul on Twitter, Barstool Politics on Facebook. Uh, tell your friends if you're enjoying the podcast. Share us and follow us on iTunes and all of the other stuff. And uh, yeah, so I don't know anything else, Phil. Happy New Year! Yeah, Happy New Year! And yeah, cheers. cheers! And and Nick, you know, get better. We don't we don't like you sick. So yeah, that's true. All right, talk to you soon, people.